Well, wonderful to be here again with you this morning as we continue in Advent, and as we do that, we are thinking about praying, uh, and we're doing this in close conversation with the, the greatest prayer ever prayed, uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer we say together here every Sunday. I just read it to you. Uh, but for the next few weeks, as we've done for the last few weeks, we are putting this prayer in slow motion, dwelling with the Word so it doesn't just become a formulaic exercise, something that we say in a perfunctory manner. So unpacking the Lord's Prayer, dwelling with it. That's what we're going to do. But before I say anything else, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would teach us to pray and give us a desire to do that and in there uh, draw us into greater depths of communion with yourself, the one in whose name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to examine two more parts of the Lord's Prayer, verse 11 and verse 13. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, and there, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And don't worry about verse 12, we're going to be back to that next Sunday, no sentence will be left behind in this sermon series. Uh, but we begin with, give us this day our daily bread. What exactly does this part of the Lord's Prayer mean? Now, when Jesus first urged people to pray this phrase, there would have been a lot of people listening to him who worked as day laborers in a subsistence economy. So they didn't know if they'd have work when they woke up or if they would get work that day. They didn't know if they would be able to buy bread for themselves and for their families. But bread, however, can refer to more than just a loaf of sunbeam. Uh, it means a lot more than, that, more than that. It can refer, in fact, to anything that we urgently need, anything that is crucial for our uh, sustenance and thriving as human beings. So if you're a student, for example, your daily bread might be what you need to pass the midterms that are coming up uh, just after Christmas. Uh, if you've been through a painful relational breakup or fracture, your daily bread might be for healing, for the binding up of a broken heart. There are parents with young kids in the room today. Uh, one of your kids wakes up uh, sick and your house becomes a vomitorium. Uh, your, your daily bread might be for the health of your child, uh, or it could be for the health of an aging parent. Perhaps you're unemployed or underemployed, uh, your daily bread might be for groceries, for money for groceries or to pay rent. And by the way, if that's your situation, please come talk to us because we have a fantastic ministry here at Christ the King Grace called Heart to Help. And we would be delighted to see how we can assist you and be part of answering your prayer for your daily bread. So in some, daily bread means more than just a tasty baguette. It means a lot more than that. Uh, listen to this explanation from the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. He said, daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, food and drink and clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout people who work for you, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors and the like. I think Luther covered all the bases. That's all part of daily bread. It's part of what we ask God for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, there's one more thing I want to say about praying for our daily bread, and this relates to the placement of this petition in the context of the Lord's Prayer as a whole. When we pray for God to give us our daily bread, we pray this after, after we have addressed God as our Father, and we pray it after we have asked that God's will would be done. As on earth as it is in heaven. And that's very significant. Let me put it like this. Uh, the Lord's Prayer does not begin with our genie and a lamp, the one who is here to give us whatever we want. 
That might be preferable for some of us, but that is not what Jesus teaches. He does not, we don't pray to a genie who says, you're the boss, the king, the shah, say what you wish, it's mine to dish, you ain't never had a friend like me, which by the way is a fantastic song, especially the Robin Williams version. Uh, to the contrary, we, we pray to a God who is perfectly loving and wise. And because of God's perfect wisdom, our Heavenly Father will sometimes say no to some of our requests. Uh, we might not always like this, but I think we can understand it. For example, this is something that parents have to do with their kids. They have to say, no way, that's not going to happen. Uh, and if they didn't say that, it would be a disaster. One of my best kids has a son who's in fourth grade, uh, but he would like to drop out of fourth grade because he doesn't like reading, reading, writing, and arithmetic. He would rather stay at home playing video games and eating ice cream every day. Uh, and if his parents let him do that, it would be disastrous. So they have to say no. We understand this. But even so, you might be saying to yourself right now, yeah, but that's a fourth grade kid. We're older. We're more mature. Surely we know what's best for us. Do we? How many people, adult people, have seriously pursued something that was not really a good idea? Uh, for example, you thought about getting married to someone, and that would have been a colossal misadventure. Uh, you thought about pursuing a certain job or a certain line of work, and that would have been awful for you. And then later on, you found out how miserable you would have been, and you gave thanks to God that that prayer was not answered. Uh, let me put it this way. Many of us, I suspect, look back to our 20s, for example, and conclude that when we were in our 20s, uh, we really didn't know what was all that good for us at that point in our lives. As has been said, when you're 15 years old, you look back at your 10-year-old self and you say, what an idiot I was. And then when you're 20 years old, you look back at your 15-year-old self and you say, what an idiot I was. And then when you're 25, you look back and you say the same thing again. Well, guess what? The Bible says that in certain ways, we're always the idiot. We're always the idiot. We are surrounded by idiots. Uh, and the people you're sitting next to are surrounded by idiots as well. I'm sorry to insult you, but I'm insulting myself at the same time. The Bible also says that God's ways are higher than our own, that his thoughts are higher than our own thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55. It's a great passage. And because God's ways are higher than ours, his thoughts are higher than ours, he will sometimes say no to things that we pray for, to a request, things which would prove harmful to us within the totality of our life viewed in the context of eternity. But when God does this, the motive is always love, and that's what you don't want to forget. Whether God says no or whether God says yes, he always has our best interest at heart. That is declared over and over again in the scripture. And so the upshot is that when we pray, Father God, give us today and our daily bread, we pray that from a posture of humility of knowing that there's a lot we don't know. Do you know that? There's a lot we don't know. At the same time, however, we pray, that God, we pray in confidence that God will provide what we need. We pray remembering Jesus' words a little bit later in Matthew 6, where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. That's a beautiful and powerful word from our Lord. But to be clear, that does not equate to a pass on suffering. It is not a guarantee of, of a life devoid of pain or difficulty. You can't live on this planet and escape adversity, and you can't follow God in this world as it is and not struggle. Everyone will have their fair share, and some of you have already had more than your fair share. Nevertheless, this part of the Lord's Prayer and Jesus' words right there, uh, they teach us that God is near, that he is taking care of us, 
that his care is real, that we're living in his care right now at this moment, and that in the end he will take care of us in ways that we can scarcely imagine. I want you to store up and cherish that truth in your heart today, just like Mary stored up things in her heart during this season of Advent. So let's move along now to verse 13. Um, this is kind of an enigmatic part of the Lord's Prayer. It's a little bit tricky. A lot of folks have found it difficult to understand over the years. Let's say it together. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I've put evil one in italics there for a reason. We often say deliver us from evil. That's what's in the liturgy, but the Greek should and can, or so I would argue, along with a lot of commentators, uh, that, that because that is a masculine direct object, it should be translated as evil one. So that's why I've translated it as evil one. Here's something that's true. We all encounter them. We all encounter times when our faith is being tested. Will we disobey what we know to be God's will? Will we act in ways that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God? What are we supposed to do with these tests? What are you supposed to do, for example, when you're at the office and you're asked to do something or told to do something that you know is unethical? Or when you're working on your taxes and withholding a little detail could prove very profitable? Or when you're at an event and you're approached by a person and the chemistry sets in and you just know where that could go? Or when there's someone who's hurt you deeply and an opportunity presents itself to exact revenge? What are we to do in those sorts of moments? The answer is that we pray the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptations, but deliver us from the evil one. There are two parts to this petition. I want to think about each of them in turn. A lot of people are troubled by the first part. It says, "Lead us, Father, Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation. Now, why should we ask God uh, to do something that is not in his character to do? Why ask a good father not to lead us into temptation? Because a good father, after all, wouldn't do that. What's going on here? The Greek word that we read as temptation is a word called pyrosmos. Say that with me. Pyrosmos. And in the first century, in the New Testament time, this word had two basic meanings. The primary meaning was test. Do not lead us into a time of testing, a time of trial. The secondary meaning was tempt. Do not lead us, or do not lead me into the enticement to sin. I want you to hold this understanding of pyrosmos in your mind for the next few minutes. I'm going to turn, come back in a few times to that word. Here's something we need to acknowledge. It turns out that almost every event, every challenge in our life is a pyrosmos. Everything. Which means it's either an occasion to prove and improve our faith in God or it's an occasion for unbelief and disobedience to weaken our faith in God. And whether an event or a challenge functions to build up our faith or to tear it down depends on who is behind it and how we respond to it. Here's something else we need to acknowledge. There are two basic truths about God and a pyrosmos. First, God does not tempt. God does not tempt. We know that because of James 1.13, a little bit later on in the New Testament. James writes this, Let nobody say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and God himself tempts no one. That's James 1.13. In other words, it is not in God's character to tempt us to sin, to entice us to sin. Second, while God does not tempt, he does test. He does test. We see this throughout the Bible. Job is tested by God. Abraham and Sarah are tested by God. Jesus is tested by God. 
Job, Abraham, Jesus, all tested by God, and those tests were intended to prove and improve the quality of their faith, the quality of their trust and allegiance and love of God. God does not tempt, but he does test. So back to verse 13 in the Lord's Prayer. If God does not tempt anyone, why do we pray this? Why do we pray this? Why do we pray, lead us not into temptation? Why bother asking God to do something that he would never do? Is there a way to resolve this dilemma? Can we sort out this pickle? And the answer is yes. You have to read the first part of verse 13, lead us not into temptation, in light of the second part, which is, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me explain. It comes to this. It is evil, or the evil one, who turns tests into temptations. It is the evil one who turns tests into temptations. God intends a test for a positive end, to strengthen our faith. But the evil one sneaks in and twists that test for a negative end, making it a temptation, something that will weaken and destroy our faith. And at this point, we have to remember something that I don't always like to remember. Namely, that we do not live in a neutral universe. We do not live in a neutral universe. There is an adversary who is seeking to wreak havoc in this world and in our lives. St. Paul, who I think we would all agree is a very intelligent man, understood very well the reality of human greed, violence, selfishness, self-centeredness. He understood the reality of human sin. But Paul also knew that evil is bigger than that. Because in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, he says that the struggles we face are not just against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The forces of evil and darkness at work in the heavenly places. That's what St. Paul says. In light of this, we might reword the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer along these lines. Father God, as you lead us to the test, which you will do because you do test us, do not let this test become a temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Now at this point, some of you might have another quandary in your minds. Okay, I understand God doesn't tempt, but why on earth does God test? What's this about? And the answer to that question is that life is found in relationship with the living God. And the essence of this relationship, at least from the human side, is trust and faith. Just like it is with all of our relationships with each other. You have a relationship with someone you trust, you trust them, you have faith in them. The Bible is full of covenants. Those are relational pacts between God and humanity. And at the heart of all these covenants is this phrase. You'll find it throughout the Old Testament. The phrase is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the language of the covenant. I will be your God. That's just God's way of saying, all that I am, all that I have, I'm placing at your disposal. I'm sharing with you my wisdom, my power, my joy, my healing, my light. And you will be my people. And reciprocally, the essence of being God's people is faith and trust. God has given everything he has, everything he is, and what he asks back is just trust. Believe in me. Have faith in me. Build your life on me. And in order to refine that trust in him, the Lord coordinates the pyrosmos. He tests us. Now it's really interesting and instructive to note that that word pyrosmos was also used of a goldsmith. In a goldsmith, in the ancient world, they would take a hunk of rock out of the earth and they'd put it into a really hot fire. And why would they do that? On the one hand, they'd do it to prove that there was gold in there. But on the other hand, they would do it to improve 
to enhance the quality of that gold. Make it into the rings that you're wearing on your finger, the earrings you have, or the necklace around you. Our Father in Heaven does the same thing. He puts us in circumstances that will prove that we have faith in Him, in circumstances that will give us an opportunity to improve the quality of our faith and trust. However, the very circumstances that God would use to prove and improve our faith, the evil one seeks to twist and hijack, to repurpose them for a negative and dark end, because he does not want us to trust the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the enemy does not want us to have life. That's why. And so he sneaks into the Father's test, he twists it, to become a temptation, which is why Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Father, as you lead me to this test, do not let this test become a temptation. Now, in closing, I want to think for a moment about how exactly the evil one twists and hijacks a test into a temptation, how he makes a test an enticement to sin. We've got a really good case study for this uh, in the desert with Jesus when he was out there for his time of fasting, 40 days and 40 nights. That's in Matthew chapter 4. And all of that happens, and you, are, you know this, uh, it happens right after Jesus has his baptism. That's a very significant event. At his baptism, Jesus receives his affirmation as God's unique son of his identity. He knows about his place in the Father's heart, heart those beautiful words, with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. And in that moment, Jesus also enters into his unique vocation, that he's going to be a servant king, that he's going to go to the highest place in the universe by first going to the lowest, the one who's going to win the world through the suffering of the cross. And immediately after this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the desert to be pyrosmost, to be tested. And out there in the desert, he got really hungry, and the evil one shows up. And he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. And it's in this event that we see some moves by which the evil one twists and turns a test into a temptation. I want to highlight three of these moves for you this morning. The enemy focuses on the negative in Jesus' circumstances in order to sow suspicion in Jesus' mind about the love of God, his father, for him, so as to get Jesus to take charge of his own life. Let's explore those three moves. First, the enemy focuses on the negative. Stones, Jesus. There's nothing out here but stones. No water, nothing to eat. You have nothing. Have you ever heard those words in your head before? The evil one wants us to focus on what we lack, on what we've lost, and he wants us to be preoccupied with that. Jesus knew, of course, there's only stones out there and no bread. He knew that but the evil one wants him to fixate on that. The evil one will sneak into my circumstances and make me fixate and dwell on what I lack, on what I've lost, on what I think is missing. Think only about that. Fixate on that. And then second, the evil one goes on to suggest to Jesus that there is something wrong with his heavenly father. If you're the son of God, dot, 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 now, Satan knows very well that Jesus is the unique son of God. He knows that Jesus believes this about himself. What he's doing is calling into question the quality of the father's love for Jesus, the quality of that relationship. So if I might paraphrase, what the evil one is saying is something like this. Look, Jesus, it's been 40 days and 40 nights. You've been waiting long enough. Some kind of father you have some kind of God you have, he says he loves you. Is this love? 
this is pitiful. I don't mean to be disrespectful, Jesus, but this doesn't look like love to me. I'm just saying. Have you ever heard anything like that in your head? Of course I have. The evil one wants to use the circumstances in my life to make wrong and misleading deductions about the quality of God's love for me. He'll point to all the negative things as a way of saying, God doesn't really love you. He's not really committed to you. And then third and finally, the evil one turns the test into the temptation by trying to entice Jesus to take control. Turn those stones into bread. Forty days is long enough to fast. In my opinion, you ought to end this fast right now. It's time to take charge, Jesus. If not you, who? If not now, when? Take charge. Be a man. Go for it. And how does Jesus respond? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the point, the point of that, what that means is that I will not end this fast until the Father tells me to do so, because obeying my Father is better than bread. And I will obey my Father even if it means more days out in the desert. Even if. And that's the key. I'm going to obey my Father in heaven even if I don't get that promotion, even if I don't make extra money that I wanted, even if I don't make the grade, even if I do not feel that I'm being authentic to myself based on how our society currently understands that, even if the culture rejects me, even if I am going to cling to and follow my Father in heaven. Focus on the negative, sow suspicion about the love of God, and then seek to make us live on our own to be in control and autonomous. That's how the evil one turns a test into a temptation. Thank goodness Jesus doesn't fall for it. He sees what's going on. Which is why in this moment of testing, Jesus' faith is proved and improved. You see, just like all of us, just like me and all of you, Jesus had to learn obedience and faith through what he suffered, through the challenges he faced. And and in doing that, his faith was made perfect. Hebrews 5.8. And that's really, really important because in time, this perfecting of Jesus' faith, of his trust in God, his Father, would become absolutely crucial. That's why we're here right now today. Because later on, Jesus went to the cross. That was the biggest, greatest, ultimate test he ever faced. And when he was hanging on that cross, he cried out, you know this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But moments later, he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit because he knew that our Father will never, never, never ultimately desert someone that he loves. Do you know that? I want you to know that. And if you've ever been told differently, I want you to put that out of your mind. God wants us to know this. He wants us to live out of that reality of his comfort and commitment and assurance to us. And you know what? He doesn't want us to do that by sheer willpower. Some of you in here are like me. You've got a lot of willpower, strong will, and you sort of You know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, get along, you know, I'll kind of make this happen. That is not how this happens. That's not how this happens, Roger. This happens through empowerment by the risen Christ, the one who is at work in and among us by the Holy Spirit, the one who in the moments when we are tempted to think God is not on our side, he doesn't care about me, he comes in and he encourages us against that and he uses us to encourage one another in that same truth, to draw one another into that same reality, because guess what? That is reality. That's reality. He's the same one who says, when you pray, 
always ask this of your Father. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.